One of the things that I love about doing the podcast is I get to read great suggestions and input from listeners all throughout the country and really across the globe through inbox messages and through emails. The very idea for this session comes from one of our listeners. Lauren sent me an inbox message saying, you know, you should really do a podcast about checking the placenta. I mean, when do we send the placenta for PATH? And what are we supposed to do with that information? Lauren, that's a great question. And so we're going to use that as our springboard for this podcast. And we're going to expand that to include abnormal umbilical cord insertions, because where that darn cord inserts into the placenta has real fetal and neonatal implications. So Lauren, thanks for your suggestion. Let's start the show. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. There are several potential benefits of pathological examinations of the placenta. These can include explanations of the etiology associated with an adverse pregnancy outcome. It can help with the formulation of a plan of management for future pregnancies. And it can even help predict the risk for long-term neonatal neurodevelopmental problems. Lastly, sending the placenta to PATH can be an important aspect of medical legal risk assessment. This has led some experts to suggest that placental pathology should be a routine component of obstetric and neonatal care. However, there is confusion regarding these potential benefits for placental examination. This has been further compounded by the lack of guidelines by the American College of OBGYN or even the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. The gross and microscopic exam of the placenta is recommended and considered to be an essential part of the evaluation following any stillbirth. However, recommendations about which placenta should be sent for pathological examination following vaginal or C-section of a live-born fetus still remain relatively unclear from these two societies. So to help assist with the decision of placental examination, the College of American Pathologists, or the CAP, that's C-A-P, back in 1997 published guidelines for placental pathological examination following delivery. Most have deferred their guidelines to those of the College of American Pathologists, including ACOG. The recommendations were for underlying maternal disease, pregnancy complications, fetal or neonatal conditions, or certain placental indications for histological review. These guidelines, again, have been adopted by many academic centers and are referred to by many in their consensus opinions. All right, so in general, according to the CAP, remember that's the College of American Pathologists, the decision to submit the placenta to the hospital's Department of Pathology for gross and microscopic exam should be based upon a reasonable likelihood that the exam will facilitate the diagnosis of maternal fetal conditions that are associated with adverse outcomes, or it may provide information salient to or allow prognosis for future pregnancies and their outcome. All right, here's a clinical pearl. Consider submitting the tissue for any level of outcome concern because it can only help you. And remember, you can't get it back once the placenta has been discarded. Most experts agree that at a minimum, all deliveries should have a brief note in the delivery record of the placenta's gross or macroscopic appearance by the delivering provider. 
This should include the color, the presence of maternal surface calcifications, the number of vessels in the cord, and the degree of twists, and where the cord inserted. The College of American Pathologists supports placental examination under the following list. But remember, this list is non-exclusive, meaning that there could be other indications that if you think it's clinically valuable to get that placenta checked, then go on and send it. The first is a list of maternal conditions. These include conditions like diabetes, hypertension, maternal substance abuse, including smoking, prematurity, which is delivery, of course, less than 37 weeks, post-maturity, which is any pregnancy greater than the 42nd gestational week. There's also peripartum conditions for which the placenta should be sent. That includes a temperature greater than 100.4 or a suspicion of intraamniotic infection. Now, here's a big note. Remember that although intraamniotic infection, or IAI, is a clinical diagnosis, sending the placenta for histological study may aid in confirming the diagnosis, though postpartum, and may reveal additional information for potential neonatal outcomes. It can also help get more information for other suspected viral conditions, like in cases of herpes infection, to see there's changes in the placenta. Also, send the placenta off for any abnormal antepartum bleeding, anything beyond normal show, suspected abruption, placenta previa, or suspected vasa previa, of course, should have that placenta sent off for evaluation. And in cases of abnormal fluid determination, either oligohydramnios or polyhydramnios should have that placenta evaluated. Next is fetal or neonatal conditions. This includes stillbirth or neonatal death, multiple births, all major or minor congenital anomalies, and fetal growth restriction. Of course, the placenta should be checked in cases of fetal hydropes or in cases of meconium-stained amniotic fluid. Speaking of meconium, remember that it takes at least four hours of meconium presence for the amniotic membranes and placental tissue to be stained by meconium. So sending the placenta off in cases of meconium-stained amniotic fluid can help provide at least a rough estimate of how long meconium has been present, although it definitely cannot pinpoint the time meconium was passed. The College of American Pathologists also recommends sending the placenta off in cases of immediate neonatal findings. What does that mean? Well, immediate neonatal findings include things like APGAR scores of 5 or less at 5 minutes, suspected encephalopathy, a cord pH less than 7.1, or gross placental anomalies. This can include an abnormal cord insertion, accessory lobes, presumed small or large for gestational age placentas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, podcast family, before we get into the normal placental structure and cord insertion, it would be a disservice if I don't at least mention Dirty Duncan and Shiny Schultz. Our poor medical students are hammered this concept by me, and our residents know that if they don't have either Dirty Duncan or Shiny Schultz in their delivery note, I'm going to come after them because it's just part of good documentation, and it helps the reader, it helps the observer understand how that placenta detached in the third stage of labor. Dirty Duncan refers to the maternal side of the placenta, the red beefy cotyledons presenting first. That means that the placenta has detached in its entirety and has slid down the uterine wall, presenting itself with the maternal surface first, Dirty Duncan. But if the umbilical cord insertion, in other words, the fetal side of the placenta presents first, then that usually means that the placenta is being pushed out, it's being evaginated out, either by uterine contraction or by blood that is pushing the placenta inside out. So what presents first is the fetal surface or the shiny side, so shiny Schultz. The clinical implication is that uterine inversion is much more likely to happen with the Schultz presentation as is concealed bleeding. All right, now on to normal placental structure and cord insertion. The placenta is a maternal fetal organ which begins developing at implantation of the blastocyst and is of course delivered after the fetus. As the fetus relies on the placenta for not only nutrition but many other developmental essential functions, the correct development of the placenta is critical for embryonic and correct fetal development. The usual term placenta is about 22 centimeters in diameter and 2 to 2.5 centimeters thick. It generally weighs around 450 to 470 grams. However, the measurements can vary considerably and placentas generally are not weighed in the delivery room. The maternal surface of the placenta should be dark maroon in color and should be divided into lobules or cotyledons. The structure should appear complete with no missing condyledons. This is why it's so crucial and so important to do a gross assessment of that placenta because retained placental fragments are a big source of postpartum hemorrhage and infection. The fetal surface of the placenta should be shiny, gray, and translucent enough that the color of the underlying maroon villus tissue should be seen. All right, what about the umbilical cord? Well, it's been estimated that 30% of births have some type of umbilical cord abnormality. At term, the typical umbilical cord is between 55 to 60 centimeters in length with a diameter of 2 to 2.5 centimeters. The structure should have abundant Wharton's jelly and no true knots or thrombuses should be present. The total cord length should be estimated in the delivery room and a gross assessment as either long or redundant or very short should be included in the macroscopic survey. Of course, the normal umbilical cord contains two arteries and one vein. The umbilical cord typically inserts into the placenta near its center. About 90% of cord insertions are central or just slightly eccentric. About 7% of umbilical insertions occur at the placental margin. 
marginal insertions, which are defined at less than two centimeters from the margin of the placenta, are also called balladore placentas. Remember, if the cord inserts within two centimeters of the edge of the placenta, that is called a marginal insertion or a balladore placenta. Now, initially thought to be benign, there's increased evidence that balladore placentas have increased risk of obstetric complications. These should definitely be sent to pathological evaluation. Some of the complications that have been identified with marginal cord insertions include fetal distress, intrauterine growth restriction, preterm labor, and even decreased birth weight. Now, in about 1% of singleton fetuses, cord insertions are filamentous with the vessels branching out into the fetal membranes with an absence of Wharton's jelly as a protective barrier. This type of cord insertion is associated with an increased risk of fetal hemorrhage from the unprotected vessels as well as vascular compression and thrombosis. A villamentous, also called membranous placental cord insertion that crosses the internal os is called a vasa previa and that condition could be devastating to the child intrapartum. That's why it's important that prenatally or during antepartum ultrasounds, an ultrasound should be done to evaluate where that cord inserts, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Villamentous cord insertions are also associated with advanced maternal age, diabetes, smoking, a single umbilical artery, and fetal malformations. Remember that a single umbilical artery has also been linked to some GU abnormalities. There's also been a link of villamentous cord insertion to adverse obstetrical outcomes, including bleeding intrapartum, IUGR, preterm birth, lower APGAR scores, and need for NICU admissions. So if you suspect a villamentous cord insertion, either prenatally on ultrasound or during gross macroscopic examination of the placenta, please be sure to send that off. This issue of abnormal placental cord insertions is a big deal. That's why there's a need to identify this prenatally. Ideally, routine identification of the placental cord insertion site can be performed via 2D or 3D prenatal ultrasound. The use of color and power Doppler ultrasound together with grayscale sono allows placental cord insertion to be identified with a high degree of specificity. Visualization of placental cord insertion can be achieved almost 100% of the time by a skilled examiner during the second trimester. Podcast family, we're so thankful that you're part of our journey and our story. Lauren, thanks for the suggestion. We have covered the what's, why's, and when's of placental examination. Guys, be safe out there, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.